Emotional or logical? How would you define yourself? I live in a house with five other people, and I can tell you that we all fall somewhere on the scale that is between those two words. Some in my family are much closer to the emotionally driven, feeling everything in a big way, and being deeply impacted by the feelings of those around them. Then there are others that fall more on the logical side, not really displaying overt emotions. However, none of us are truly either one or the other. I do find that younger children seem to be purely driven by emotion. Have you ever tried to have a rational conversation with a toddler who's throwing a fit? <laughs> Multiple choice time. Imagine you are a four-year-old. You're grocery shopping with your mom and spot your favorite snack. Mom tells you no, not this time. What would your first reaction be? A, throw yourself down in the aisle, crying and refusing to move until you get your snack. Sneak the snack into the cart when mom isn't looking and hope she doesn't notice. Pout and give mom the silent treatment while glaring at her and walking as slowly as possible, making sure she knows how upset you were. Or tell her you are disappointed, but you understand that she is the parent and she knows best. <laughs> okay. You are now an adult. You can get any snack you want whenever you want, but probably better hide it from the kids. You swing by the grocery store and head straight to the snack aisle. After a few minutes of looking, you discover that they are out of the one thing you had been thinking about all day. What is your reaction? Find the nearest associate and yell at them for not having the item in stock, going so far as to threaten physical harm. Sit down in the snack aisle and burst into tears. Sometimes life is so unfair. Leave the store and take to social media. You are a keyboard warrior and use every platform you have to share the truth about how awful this chain of stores is. You find others who agree with you and make an entire army of disgruntled customers who will support your claims with stories of their own. Or sigh and either find something else that looks good or decide you really shouldn't be eating snacks as often as you do anyway. Maybe it was a good thing that they were out of your favorite since it was on sale and you probably would have bought three. It's easy to imagine a child who is openly and loudly displaying all of their emotions with no thought to those around them. And although we, all choose, uh, we, we would all choose option D, self-control and self-awareness, we can easily imagine other adults behaving in a similar fashion to, to the four-year-old. We live in a world that is emotionally charged. From COVID and all that came with it to recent court decisions, people are taking to every platform to express their thoughts and feelings. Many posts or conversations lead to an emotional explosion of responses. Even the most logical can be pulled into a discussion that devolves into nothing more than a cat fight. If we're going to have productive interactions with people, we need to learn to handle our emotions. So how do we learn emotional maturity? I have a few ideas for you to consider. One, acknowledge your feelings. Be able to name them. What is the root and the why of them? Being able to accurately pinpoint what you feel will lead to self-awareness. If it helps, talk, th talk things out with a trusted person. As a parent, I am often helping my kids put the correct name to what they are feeling. I hate you is a common thing for kids to say. I have heard it from each of my children once, always after discipline and usually with a door slam to accentuate the point. I gave them a few moments to calm down, then I explained to them what the word hate means. After talk about it, if that was really how they felt towards me, we were able to find other words that better fit the situation. Giving our children the vocabulary needed to truly express themselves is part of how we are empowering them. Two, learn to communicate clearly and productively about how you feel. Oftentimes, it won't change the situation, but it does help foster better discussion. 
Harsh language, personal attacks, yelling, typing in all caps, or name calling are often defenses that people will use when they feel their position is being threatened and they are not adequately defending it. Just this week, sorry, Sophie, I didn't expect her to be in the audience. Just this week, Sophie, uh, uh, I had to remind Sophie that lashing out verbally when things are not going her way is simply not okay. She doesn't yell, really, just gets this high-pitched, whiny voice and then badgers whoever she's upset with until they relent. It's an impressive display of manipulation for a 12-year-old. We remind her to use the large vocabulary she has and tell her siblings why she is upset and then, if possible, come up with a solution to satisfy both sides. It doesn't always work, but it's a good habit to begin building now. Three, remember that others have feelings. It's easy to think that as long as we are speaking the truth, it doesn't matter how the receiver feels. Try to see things from their perspective. You don't have to validate their feelings, but people seem to respond better when you try to understand where they are coming from. Matt has made it a practice to begin every conversation with a difficult customer by acknowledging how they feel and then trying to come up with a solution. He says about 80 to 90% of the time, the conversation changes tone and they, they can productively move forward. Four, having an emotional response is not an excuse for bad behavior. Blaming others for your poor self-control is immature and dangerous. No one can make you do anything. You can't control their actions, but you can control your reactions. I have daily practice as a parent. It is easy for me to get frustrated and lose my temper over socks and toys and Sharpies. It sounds funny saying it here, but this is a daily struggle. I have the choice to yell at the kids or speak to them in a respectful way, reminding them of what I need from them. I don't always make the best choice. That is when an apology is necessary and it needs to be honest, taking responsibility for my bad behavior. Five, find a productive way to deal with your emotions. We have an Instapot in my house. For those who don't know, this is a pressure cooker. There are two ways to release uh, the pressure that has been building, natural release and quick release. The natural release makes a quiet hissing sound, letting the pr pressure release gradually. The quick release is one of the scariest things I've ever done while cooking. <laughs> you, you turn the nozzle and all the built-up pressure comes out in a loud and powerful release of steam. What kind of release do you have for the internal pressure that builds up? Find a way to naturally let off steam. Pray, take a time out, go to the gym, paint, read, start and finish a project. Do something kind for someone else. Find what works for you. Emotions are not something to be avoided or ignored. They are our natural reactions to the world around us. They can tell us a lot about our mental health and relational health. The important thing about emotions is our response to them. We cannot be driven by our feelings like a child often is. We have to take responsibility for them and learn to control our actions and reactions. And as we are learning and growing in maturity, we need to teach our children. Then maybe they will be a generation of adults who can handle emotionally charged situations with ease and grace. Now it's time for me to sit down and breathe a sigh of relief that this is over. The stress is tr of trying to write something worth sharing and the desire to run and hide have passed. Time to enjoy the knowledge that I will not be asked to do this again for a very long time. So I didn't get a rule book about this, but I think you're supposed to make a joke about Wendell. Did I hear him say the word volunteer for this? This is not a democracy. Okay. So anyway, 
I do not have anything about myself I considered interesting enough to talk about for this small eternity. So I'm going to talk about something I consider very cool, the power of God. Yes, I know God is all-powerful, and the examples of his power in daily life and the Bible aren't even a fraction of his real power, but I consider the examples cool, and you can deal with it. <laughs> Job put it well in Job chapter 26, verses 7 through 14. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. By his power he churned up the sea, by his wisdom he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath the skies became fair, his hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his works, how faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? All that, and it is described as the outer fringe of his power. Small acts of power went out against those who required punishments at various times in the Bible. Aaron's sons, when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, were consumed with fire from the Lord. The entire world was washed over with a mighty flood in the days of Noah, destroying all but the Lord's chosen few. Egypt was ravaged with a series of plagues, demonstrating the Lord's command over all aspects of the world as he broke them down until Pharaoh was forced to relent. But with this power, he also protects and cares for us, as he protected Elisha with chariots of fire in Second Kings, when the servant's eyes were opened to reassure him of their safety. He guided the Israelites out of Egypt as pillars of cloud and fire. Can you imagine what the Egyptians must have thought when they saw fire guiding their former slaves away? He parted the seas so that they could walk along the bed to safety, a feat that no one alive could have imagined before they witnessed it themselves. When the Egyptians pursued, he allowed the water to crash back in, drowning the whole of the pursuing host. He holds power over life and death, as Jesus demonstrated when he raised Lazarus from the dead and later rose himself. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he spoke of the armies the Lord would put at his disposal in an instant, if he asked, more than 12 legions. Mind you, this is at minimum 72,000 powerful agents of God available at an instant to his son. All this, the outer fringe of his ability, a tiny taste of what he is capable of. This is all very meaningful to me because it makes the love of God so much more unbelievable when you have half a grasp on just how mighty our creator and guardian is. This unbelievably powerful being, whose call is heeded by the very sky, loves and cares for the smallest of his creations, as well as the creations that spit in his face on a daily basis. Humanity. Humanity for whom Jesus was sent to die. All our failings, all our disrespect, and our unimaginably powerful God still sacrificed his only son so that we wouldn't face eternal death for our failings, despite the fact that we undeniably deserve the worst of fates for what we've done. We killed his son, for trying to save us. Would any of us in the same position not have immediately obliterated all of, it, all of those responsible? But no, on the cross Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. As we were killing him, he asked for us to be forgiven. This person, with the power to destroy us all, or simply remove himself from the cross and depart, not only stayed there to bear our punishment, but wanted us to be forgiven for his murder. Such extreme love and extreme power needs to be taken together to understand the depths of this sacrifice. And it's always such a relief to think of wait. Hang on. Such a relief to think of how much he loves us and how powerful a guardian he is for us. What significance is a hurricane or a plague or an economic crisis when compared to the might of the one in charge? Sand and the breeze in the big picture. 
It may be rough for us in the moment, but our God in heaven makes it all seem less than insignificant when you remember he's on your side. And I am comforted and thrilled to know that he's the one watching over our nine-week-old child in the womb. Congratulations. <laughs> Just four days ago, my nephew Gray was on his front porch cutting a coconut when the knife slipped and sliced his arm. His parents were not home, and a sibling in the house could not hear him yelling for help. Two strangers were riding by on their bikes and stopped. They ran up to the porch and spotted a bag that Gray's brother had accidentally left outside. It had a rope in it, and they used it as a tourniquet on Gray's arm, saving his life as he had cut his radial artery and would have bled out in minutes before the ambulance could have ever arrived. Gray's accident highlights my topic today, the unexpected, and I am humbled and blessed to be able to share with you today as you have all walked with me beside the darkest time of my life. In case we have any visitors, let me give you a little background so what I share has context for you. On Father's Day, June 16, 2019, our daughter Brianna sprained her ankle playing volleyball in the yard with her siblings. One month later, on July 16th, she died unexpectedly from multiple pulmonary embolisms stemming from her sprained ankle. Unfortunately, I was not new to grief when Brianna died. Prior to Bree's death, I had mourned the loss of four of our preborn babies, both of my parents, my oldest sister, and Dave's mother. Brianna's, in spite of those past experiences, however, when the doctor uttered the words, I am sorry, Brianna's brain has started to herniate into her brain stem. There's nothing we can do. Her death is imminent. I felt a new level of pain I didn't know was possible to survive. For several weeks after Bree's death, I would be curled up with a blanket in the corner of my bedroom for hours, sobbing and repeating this one phrase, I want her back. The depth of pain was simply indescribable. For the first time in my life, I understood why people turned to cutting and addictions when struggling with immeasurable emotional pain. I realized that without my relationship with Christ and God's grace, there go I. A quote I recently heard sums up the, grief of my, the depth of my grief quite well. It hurts just as much as it's worth. My main focus today, however, is not on the grief of losing Brianna, but a struggle I battled with when she died that was even more debilitating than the grief, and one for which I was not prepared, and that was the guilt. To understand the guilt, I must give more details regarding the day before Brianna's death. I was privileged to spend the day with Bree until she left for 412. Throughout the day, she was her normal, lighthearted self and appeared the same when she arrived home from 412. She laid down for a short time in the family room and then got back up to get ready for bed. As she was walking, she suddenly said that she had ringing in her ears. I had her sit down and put her head down. She then said that when she had been lying down moments before, her heart had seemed to race and it had been more difficult to breathe. She was sweaty and pale. It was a hot July evening and we didn't have air conditioning, so we got a fan and pointed it towards her. As I stayed by Brianna's side, I could tell that she was anxious and even somewhat scared and panicky, which was unlike her. She said it was difficult, more difficult to breathe when she talked and wondered aloud if she had an infection. Kellen looked up the symptoms for that particular infection, but they didn't fit what Bree was describing. 
Upon hearing this, she seemed to relax a bit. We got her water and apple juice to drink in case she was dehydrated and or had a blood sugar drop, and then we just waited with her to see if her condition improved. I discussed taking her to the ER, but she was reluctant to go. I was unsure if that would be best because I didn't want her to pass out while trying to get her to the vehicle, as she had just been lightheaded and was still using crutches. So instead, I got out her insurance card and my phone, as I was, because I was going to call the 24-7 nurses line and get their advice. As I was about to dial, she told me that she was feeling a little better and was just really tired. She said she thought she was fighting a cold and needed to sleep and said I didn't need to call. To my shame and regret, I put her, I put her card away without calling. After, her, after helping her settle into a lazy boy chair with a monitor and a fan by her side, I went up to bed. The next morning when I checked on Brianna, her symptoms were back and worsening quickly. We called an ambulance, but she went into cardiac arrest in our driveway, and though, we were, and though they were eventually able to regain a pulse, they were unable to save her. I'm not sure when the guilt struck, but when it did, it struck with a vengeance. The guilt went something like this. My job as her mother was to protect her, and I failed. I knew Brianna. I raised her and even homeschooled her. She was not a dramatic daughter or easily rattled or anxious. I should have known by her anxiety alone that this was something very serious. I should have paid more attention to the warning signs. I should have taken her to the ER immediately or at least called the nurse's line. I was a complete failure. I never, ever wanted to hear Happy Mother's Day again or even acknowledge the holiday existed. How could I celebrate a day meant to honor mothers when I had failed so miserably and irreversibly in that very role? I was a poster child for a loser mom. Medical professionals had assured me that I was not to blame and that a different course of action would have ended the same. But my mind kept arguing that only God could know if that was true. And so the guilt remained. Unable to shake the self-condemnation, I turned to my close friends, and family members within the congregation for help. Encouragement and a flood of prayers on my behalf followed. After learning of my struggle with guilt, one friend sent me an email saying that she thinks we have the tendency to see ourselves as having more control over our lives than we do. She went on to say that many things about our lives are clear in retrospect, but could only be anticipated ahead of time if we were omniscient. As I read and reread her email, I realized the truth of her words. I was putting myself in God's place instead of recognizing my limited knowledge and dependence upon him for everything. Her words brought relief for my guilt for many months, but alas, the shame and self-condemnation came rushing back. In desperation, I once again reached out for help in an email. In part, it read, Hi, my dear friends. It has been a while since you've heard a specific prayer request, but alas, the demons are back, so to speak. Today, I searched the internet to look up possible causes for chest pain to determine if it was worth mentioning at my upcoming routine doctor's appointment. As I did, I came across pulmonary embolisms as a possible cause. As I read the likely symptoms, it fit breeze to a T. I was immediately distraught, and as you have probably guessed by now, all the self-condemnation was back with a fury. I ever the optimist thought I'd put that behind me, but evidently not. I battled well into the wee morning hours. I finally fell asleep, but it was not restful. Today I've been pretty much depressed in the clinical sense of the word, fatigued and emotionally flat. 
I'm not concerned that the depression will last, but I really want to be done with the guilt and second-guessing of my actions. The sorrow is much more manageable than the guilt. I had so many encouraging responses and prayers uttered on my behalf in response to my email, and I truly appreciated each and every one, but I received one reply in particular that I would like to share with you. Kim, I'm praying for Christ's return. I'm pretty sure at the resurrection that particulars of that terrible day won't be worth a thought for you or Brie. I hate that it's so agonizing now, though. I'm sorry the world has fallen, and I'm sorry for everything I contribute to its fallenness. Don't we all, by virtue of our sin, participate in the fallen state of the universe that, mean, that results in everyone's deaths? I say I hate sin, but I'm afraid I don't hate my own sin nearly as much as I should. Sometimes, though, when I get a glimpse of its true effect on the world, when I see that my selfishness and pride are my stamp of approval on Adam and Eve's rebellion, when I realize that I've played a part in every death since Abel's, I think my view of my sin gets just a little closer to God's view of it. Those words brought final release from that guilt I'd been desperately battling on and off for one year, seven months, and three days. The next time the guilt tried to creep in, I responded, yes, I am in part responsible for Brianna's death, but not because of any actions that I took or didn't take on the night before she died, but because of my rebellion against a holy and just God. Not only did that new perspective eliminate any foothold for the guilt, but it refocused me on the seriousness of my sin and elicited praise to God for his redemptive work on my behalf. As I conclude, I'd like to challenge you to think about your own life. There are many applications possible, but I will zero in on just a couple. First, how do you view your own sin? Do you gloss over your selfishness, loose tongue, pride, quick temper, or whatever sins you struggle with as just minor shortcomings? Or do you see them for the atrocities that they are against our holy, righteous, and infinite God? And recognize your contribution to the fallen state of the universe and the part you've played in every death. Second, how prepared are you for the unexpected? No one at church on Sunday, on the Sunday Bree shared her hymn reflection, expected to hear of her death two days later. And no one gathered together at Josh and Nicole's baby shower to celebrate the life of their baby girl, Sophia, expected to hear of the baby's death that very night. Are you ready for the unexpected? Are you prepared to face death? Have you confessed Jesus as your personal Savior and committed your life to him so that your salvation is secure? Do you appreciate the people God has placed in your life and make an effort to spend time with them while you have the opportunity? Are you cultivating a deeper relationship with God by studying his word, listening intently to sermons, taking advantage of classes offered by the leadership, and applying what you learn so that your faith is not shipwrecked when you face great tragedy prick? pain, or persecution? Are you actively participating within a local body of believers and devoting time to cultivate relationships with them so that you can be an effective and wise support for them in their time of need and receive help when your world suddenly goes black? Or are your goals, your job, your schooling, your possessions, entertainment, social media, hobbies, and leisure activities so encompassing that you just don't have time for anything or anyone else? I simply cannot imagine where I would be today without God in this body of believers, nor do I want to, for that place would be indescribably dark and agonizing. 
Brianna's final words from her personal reflection she shared just nine days before she died are equally fitting today. So I will close with her words. Quote, most of all, of course, I'm thankful for Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. This thankfulness should spur me on to share the gospel with others and also encourage me in the process of sanctification as I wait for the blessed hope of eternal life. Thank you, Kim. Um, so I, I may end up on a slightly lighter note. Um, I have uh, perhaps n nothing whimsical to share, but something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, it started back in uh, April when Josh Miles was up here announcing birthdays and kind of doing his thing. And he knew I was turning 50, and he kind of looks over to me. And I sort of have to move on. Let's just move on. I don't have anything clever to say. <clears throat> but I wanted to clarify that it wasn't because I was uh, not wanting to mention my age. I just don't like that kind of attention. I don't like being up here either. It's pretty much the same thing, like Kenton said. In fact, what I find is the whole routine where people say, oh, yeah, I'm 39, uh, 15 years running. And that whole thing is not very appealing to me. Um, I don't find it uh, very becoming. And uh, Carrie once said, it really stuck with me, uh, it is having a birthday is better than the alternative. And uh, it turns out not only am I not in denial about getting older, I'm rather looking forward to it. And what's more, I believe we have biblical grounds for such a very unpopular view. Uh, to counter the culture that always seems to be telling us that younger is better doesn't seem that hard to fight. Like, I wouldn't want to go back 10, 20, 30 years. Like, I did decades worth of work to get to where I am. Why, why would I want to do all that over again? That sounds terrible. You compare this view to how C.S. Lewis represents it in his, uh, the second book of his space trilogy, where the queen of Paralandra equates becoming older with gaining wisdom and knowledge. So she says things like, when she learns something great, she's elated, and she says, piebald, you've made me so much older, while being young uh, means to be ridiculous and lacking insight. And in the end, those are the two different views that we have, one that says youth is primarily important, or the other one that says maturity is. And case in point, with no exaggeration needed, um, the very same hour I was writing this down, I passed by a table at Old Crown where a uh, young man was standing by um, a married couple that was sitting down, and he said, oh, well, happy birthday and welcome to the next decade. And her answer was, yeah, right. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing where nobody thinks anything of what a terrible answer that is. Uh, and this was, by all appearances, a perfectly healthy woman like I said, sitting with her husband, enjoying time together, and she just kind of throws it back in his face. And that's pretty much the typical answer. Now, it could be there had been something catastrophic that had happened in this woman's life that we don't know about, but that doesn't explain why that kind of answer is more the norm than the exception. And what's especially indicting is that's true in our culture where we have uh, so much less to complain about than everywhere else in the world. So anyway, as approaching 50, I wanted to think about a way to give a more thoughtful answer. And it seems like gratitude for our lives ought to be enough, but I do think there's uh, more to say. So I have just a brief argument I want to lay out for what I would call 
optimism in aging. So I want to start with a quick exercise in logic. Um, Christianity aside, of course, it's not helpful to be illogical about anything. So for example, if you ask someone point blank, are you looking forward to getting older? What's the answer probably going to be? They're going to be like, uh, no, no, probably not. But if you say, would you want to live or die? And you might want to be careful with that. If they're like <laughs> carrying a weapon, don't sneak up behind them and say that. Um, but you're going to get a very different answer, right? So what explains this strange uh, disconnect? You know, if you don't want to die, that means you'd rather live. And if you want to live, if you live, you age. And if you're being rational, the conclusion is, yeah, I guess I, guess I want to get older. But especially with Christians, we are expected to receive everything with thanksgiving. What I think happens, like everything else, and what Josh Birch pointed out is the case with death, we don't think very deeply or often about it. And worrying about it is not the same thing, by the way. Uh, of course, at first glance, it's easy to see why. Uh, there are just aspects of aging that a normal, well-adjusted person would, of course, not look forward to. So what we tend to do is avoid thinking about it as much as possible. I know the older I get, I leave behind my peak physical abilities and will at some point no longer retain my maximal mental capabilities, and that's okay. That doesn't even take into account possible life-altering um, illnesses, uh, of course, important relationships that will fail to turn out the way I had hoped, and so on. But of course, I know these kind of things are going to happen. They're bound to happen. So how do I deliberately apply biblical counsel in order to be prepared? And I only have just two quick points. But before we do that, I just wanted to think of this developmentally as human beings. Like when we're really young, it's growth, like Robin was saying, growth and maturity. That's all there is. We have nowhere to go but up. We're a bunch of knuckleheads running around, and the adults try to keep us alive, and that's pretty much the whole thing. Even when we become teenagers, our brains are literally still not fully developed. I don't mean that offensively. It's just true. Um, like, I can't tell you how glad I am that Deanna didn't meet me as a teenager. Wouldn't have worked out <laughs> because she's wise. Uh, and on the whole, a 20-year-old making poor choices is very different than a 40-year-old doing the same things. Such a younger person we might deride, discipline, or even laugh at, but the more aged a man, the more disgrace and embarrassment he brings on himself and his family. Simply growing older, unfortunately, does not guarantee maturity. So I've made more mistakes in my life than I can count. Car accidents alone, I don't even know the number. I'm not kidding. Um, but I submit, you know, the real tragedy, or what I might call genuine foolishness, is not learning from even those things, which does unfortunately happen. I tell my students this all the time. If you manage to survive the awful awkwardness of being a young person, reflect on all those stupid things and don't do those stupid things ever again. And I cite myself as an example pretty often. Then, as time goes on, a person can become more circumspect and they become increasingly well-defined, producing consistency and steadfastness, which are all good things. But then it seems that the trap, uh, when we get to somebody like my age, becomes continuing growth and maturity. So my theory on development is we have all this pressure exerted on us when we're younger by 
our parents, our peers, then we have superiors and bosses, and we have romantic interests. And these people help us become people that other people can, you know, they, we can stand, they can stand being around us because we're tolerable. But all of a sudden, all that pressure on us disappears. And what happens when we're older is we must actively invite that back into our lives. And Proverbs calls this the wise man who seeks counsel and consults others. Watching most men get older is a little like concrete drawing. It's like watching them get set in their ways and with a diminished urgency for self-reflection, perhaps believing that he has less need to grow, or even worse, thinking of himself as a finished product. So may none of us ever believe that. In biblical terms, um, this is what we call sanctification, an active and continuing process for every believer up until the moment he or she is with the Lord. So I must ask myself, how do I plan to maintain growth? And there's a million things I could say. I just had two quick things. One is, of course, I should be setting goals for myself. If I don't become deliberate with my time, abilities, and resources, why would I automatically expect growth? That isn't how things work. As I age for however long the Lord allows, how can I capitalize on things I had less of when I was younger, be it knowledge, wisdom, money, leisure time. Um, so examples of goals I've set are things like Bible memorization. You don't have to be eight to do that. Um, I'd like to learn the cello. I'd like to get my contractor's license. I mean, there's lots of things I like to do because I happen to be industrious, but of course I may not be physically or financially able to do any of those. So fortunately for me, I have a list of personal shortcomings that's really long to work on, so that's great. I also have an ever-expanding list of books to read. Uh, after all, I cannot apply what I haven't learned. I also plan on um, increasing my investment in others, predominantly people younger than me, but not necessarily. And in general, I just want to continue developing my potential and think of myself that way to have more to offer others. I want to be more of a giver than a taker, more of a problem solver than a complainer. I don't like complainers. And if I find myself inadequate in an area I ought to have been prepared for, then I have work to do. And my last and probably more important point is, um, do you invite feedback into your life? Or even more generally, are you open to criticism? And this is a hard thing to do. But when we think about how God works in our lives, it isn't always so mystically. It's just uh, one of his most effective tools is what we would rather it not be. Other people telling us things that are hard to hear. I can personally attest to the Lord shaping me significantly through friends and even relationships that aren't close to me <clears throat> making significant changes in my life. This is completely indispensable, I believe, to the Christian, and it's exactly what we ought to see happening in the church. Unfortunately, it is easy and natural for us to identify flaws in others. We're like geniuses at it. We're very perceptive, but when it comes to our own shortcomings, we rationalize, we make excuses, and we're blind to it most of the time. And this is why we can all relate to Jesus' teaching on the uh, speck in our brother's eye and the plank in our own. The difference is a childish person can't bring himself to apply this teaching. <clears throat> we might even be tempted to think of a wise person as somebody who no longer needs advice or instruction, like Yoda. But that's not true, because that's completely unrealistic. A mature man or woman, a person you can really look up to, yes, should have much to offer others, but also is someone who accepts and even welcomes correction. In this, they set an example for those younger than them. I can think of uh, Wendell, my dad, 
Tim, uh, my older brother, as terrific examples. Conversely, and somewhat comically, consider what must be true about the person who is, has the mindset of being unapproachable. They're basically saying, how dare you suggest I'm not perfect and that I might need to change, which is hilarious. Um, but you know, that, does that sound like a reasonable person with a godly perspective? Of course not. And it, this is all easier said than done. Once after Deanna challenged me on something, for I don't know how many times that was, uh, she followed it up with, I mean, I would have thought you'd find that refreshing. <laughs> like, soda is refreshing. I don't know about <laughs> that. It's, that's pretty next level stuff. Maybe in 10 years I can come back and say that was the case. That would be awesome. But consider the radical and aggressive imagery from like Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. So one person sharpens another. That sounds unsafe and it sounds dangerous. Only the mature and those continuing to mature are able to receive input with humility, saying something like, hey, thanks for being willing to say something to me. I will definitely think it over. You know, why is that so hard? Or I appreciate you investing your time and energy in trying to help me. And again, people, there's so many examples. I know Sean Meyer is very good at that, and my wife is as well. People take to heart Proverbs 12, which simply says, to learn you must love discipline, and it is stupid to hate correction. And I used to think of that as more of a parenting to child type passage. I don't think that anymore. So yes, it's difficult to be vulnerable, there's no question, but our pride and immaturity can make it downright painful, and I just don't want to be that kind of person. So in closing, I just thought it would be uh, not good to skip over a very important and frequently misunderstood verse from Philippians 1, summarized, well, there's a whole passage in Philippians 1, but it's summarized in verse 21 that says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're probably all familiar with that, where Paul on the one hand desires to please God and live his life for his glory, but on the other hand, Paul longs for that promised final rest. And the thing is, both of those things are very real. But the solution to this perceived dilemma is always the same. My life here and now is to be put of my own volition into God's active use, serving others, which in turn, fortunately, tempers my own persistently selfish will. That's how it works. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to explain in Philippians 2, that our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And therefore, we don't wish for the finish line prematurely. So I think all of that said convinces me that what is best ought to be at least what's yet to come. And the thing is, the Christian can actually mean it. That's not a platitude. Am I looking forward to aches and pains and worse? No, I'm not an idiot. <clears throat> but I do have meaningful reasons, and I think we all should have real hope to think rightly about old age. Speaking of old age, <laughs> I'm like one of the oldest members up here now in this church. Hey, thank you so much. Robin, Kenton, Kim, and Dave, um, appreciate those words very much. Our philosophy here is in every member ministry, and twice a year we have um, one of the ways to express that is having different members of our church share. And um, today was, as to be expected, very rich. Um, it's almost like we needed a reflection after each personal reflection, just to kind of think about what was said. 
Um, uh, um, Kim, in particular, was um, very serious and really tugged at us, and as something we're just going to be thinking about for the next several days. I know I will. Thank you so much. But again, thank thank everybody who shared. So it was um, just that right tension today between information and exhortation. It was just very good. Some of these are going to be a little bit more light and heavy, and some are going to be a little more impersonal and personal, that sort of thing. But we look forward to the next one, which will be probably like the first Sunday in January. So don't be surprised if I come up to you soon and volunteer you for that. For that. All right, so let's stand, and I will dismiss with... Um, these words from Paul, where he says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So upon those words, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.